This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hello, everyone. Happy Wednesday and welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. I hope you all are having a great week. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Before we jump right on into it today, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button wherever you are listening. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here every single Wednesday and you will not want to miss it. So if you guys listened to last week's episode, you know that we discussed the Kanika Jenkins case and you guys had a lot to say about Kanika Jenkins' case. So we're going to run through some of the thoughts that you guys had before we jump in to today's case. As always, you can always email me your thoughts, theories, questions, comments, concerns on any case that we cover at killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's just killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. So the first comment or suggestion or theory that we're going to be talking about comes from someone who said, hi, I found this case for a while now and I've always thought that she was sexually assaulted, abducted, or taken for her organs in the black market. There were some evidences that support this theory. A, she was very drunk, so how could she open the freezer? That is very, very heavy. B, her clothes, at least her jean jacket, is torn and some were pulled up and her body was positioned as if she was thrown. C, the CCTV tape took a long time to release, possibly to edit or modify. And D, she had bits of black trash bags on her nails. In the CCTV, there was someone pushing a cart with a black trash bag that looks like it holds a person. Now, after the episode was released, a lot of you did come forward and say that Kanika was found with bits and pieces of a black trash bag underneath her nails, which could indicate that she was trying to, you know, get out of a black trash bag if she was stuffed inside of one. There's a lot of different things that that could be the result of. As far as her clothes go, we talked last time about that term paradoxical undressing, which happens when someone goes through hypothermia. And just for a brief overview on that, it's basically when someone feels so overheated in the final stages of hypothermia. It's like your body tricking you. And so in turn, you end up feeling the need to remove your clothes because you feel so overheated when in reality you're going through hypothermia. But all of those points made are very, very valid points. So thank you for sending that in. The next one that we're going to be reading today comes from someone who says, quote, hi Savannah, I've loved your videos for a long time and I'm a huge fan of your podcast too. The Kanika Jenkins case, something doesn't sit right with me. Her friends ditching her is super odd, but on the CCTV footage, we only see Kanika stumbling around by herself. On the surface, it seems like a really horrible accident but I don't know. Something about it seems really off. Something is out of place and I can't quite figure out what. Do you understand what I mean? 
end quote. Okay, yes, I 100% understand what you mean. And this case is one of those that I really, as unfortunate as it is and how terrible as it is, this is one of those cases where I always think we're never going to know the full truth about if there was more to the story. There are so many different elements in this case that just don't sit right. Her friends leaving her, you know, her wandering down to the lower level, her parents not being allowed to see the CCTV footage. So many different things in this case just don't sit right. So I 100% know what you mean when you say that. And I think that's the general consensus from a lot of people is that no one really knows why this case doesn't sit right with them and why the verdict doesn't sit right with them from this being ruled as an accidental death. But after doing the YouTube video that I did in last week's episode, it's very clear to me that a lot of you believe that this was way more than just some tragic accident. But the last one that we're going to be reading today comes from someone that says, quote, Hey Savannah, thanks for a great podcast. I've just discovered yours during lockdown. While this case is so sad, I personally don't think this is anything past an awful incident. Kanika simply had too much to drink, went to her friends, and became lost, wandering into the fridge that should have been either locked or inaccessible to anyone other than staff where she sadly passed away, end quote. Well, first of all, thank you for enjoying the podcast and I'm glad you found it during lockdown. At least that's one good thing to come out of this lockdown. But in terms of what you said, this being a tragic accident is more so where the facts lie in this case. And I can never sit up here and say that Kanika's case was 110% an accident and I know that for a fact and da 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 because I don't. Obviously, there's a possibility that something did happen to Kanika that led to her death and it was not accidental. You know, I go back to what we talked about last week with the possibility that she was drugged by something that's traceless and that's what's kind of led to her being in such a delusional state that took her over the edge of being just drunk. So thank you guys so much for sending in your thoughts and theories and comments on Kanika's case. I really appreciate it and I loved going through them. So with that being said, we are going to talk about today's case. So as y'all can tell from the title of today's episode, today we are talking about the White House farm murders. So this was actually requested by a listener of Killer Instinct and when I looked into it, I realized I couldn't not cover this case and you guys will quickly see why. Today we are talking about a wealthy family who lived what seemed to be a picture-perfect life. However, what happened behind closed doors was anything but idyllic. There really is no way to give you the over view of this case without giving the whole thing away, so we're just going to jump right on into it. So this case takes place in Essex, England in 1985 and focuses on a family called the Bamber family. In this family, we have the parents, June and Neville Bamber. They have their two children, Jeremy and Sheila, and Sheila's children, Daniel and Nicholas. June and Neville got married in 1949. Neville was a strong, stable man he stood at about six feet four inches tall, he was in good health, and he had multiple different jobs throughout his life. He worked as a Royal Air Force pilot, he also worked as a farmer and a local magistrate. June Neville's wife was described as a very religious woman. She had always said to be kneeling and praying and enforcing her practices on her children and her grandchildren. Now, when June and Neville first got married, they tried to have children of their own, but they were unsuccessful successful, which led them to the decision that they wanted to adopt. 
So they ended up adopting Sheila and Jeremy. Both were very young infants when they were adopted, and Sheila and Jeremy don't come from the same family biologically, so they're not blood-related. Neville and June were really, really excited to be able to have their own family, and they ended up moving into a home that had previously belonged to June's father to start this next chapter of their life. And we're not just talking about some small house either. We are talking about a house that stood on 300 acres of land. It was a beautiful, beautiful farmhouse, but even though everything on the outside looked like a dream at this point for Neville and June, they were married, they had two children, an amazing property, June was suffering from major depression. She was admitted to a psychiatric hospital on two different occasions, once in 1955 and once in 1958. During these stays, she was given electroshock therapy, which if you are unfamiliar with what it is. Essentially, it's when your body is hooked up to all these machines that essentially induce a seizure on you. This was actually not an uncommon practice that was used a lot many years ago and is actually still used to this day. So this was something June went through multiple times in hopes that it would help cure her depression. However, this was not the case and June's depression doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of the demons this family was fighting with on the inside. And you have to remember the time frame that we're talking about. We're not talking about in today's times where depression and anxiety and mental health is more discussed openly and freely and hopefully in a less judgmental environment. We're talking in the 1950s where this was seen as a like a taboo subject. No one talked about this. So she went to the psychiatric hospital to get electroshock therapy to cure her depression. So just keep that in mind as well. So let's talk about Sheila and Jeremy. So Sheila was born on July 18th, 1957 to her biological mother whose name was Phyllis. Phyllis was 18 years old when she had Sheila and Sheila was given up for adoption two weeks after she was born. June and Neville then adopted Sheila a couple months later in October of 1957. Growing up, Sheila's education consisted of multiple private schools and after graduating high school, she attended secretarial college, which is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It's a school where you get taught tools on how to become a secretary. And as far as Sheila's relationship with her parents goes, you know, it's never been reported that she had a terrible relationship with Neville, her father. However, her relationship with June was extremely toxic. When Sheila was 17 years old, she got pregnant by her boyfriend named Colin, and because her parents didn't approve of her having a baby, basically, you know, out of wedlock, June and Neville arranged for Sheila to get an abortion. Now, June being extremely religious, this decision did not sit well with her, even though she was the one who wanted Sheila to have this abortion. And after the abortion, June and Sheila's relationship continued to deteriorate. After the abortion, Sheila and Colin, who was the boyfriend who had gotten her pregnant to begin with, they got married in May 1977 when Sheila was 20 years old. After her and Colin got married, Sheila unfortunately went through two different miscarriages, one of them being while she was six months pregnant. However, after the two miscarriages, Colin and Sheila were able to get pregnant again and they ended up having twin boys on June 22nd, 1979 and named them Nicholas and Daniel. Now, right around the time that the boys were born, Colin, who was Sheila's husband, began to have an affair and this affair actually led Colin to leave Sheila five months after her boys were born to go and be with the woman he was cheating on her with. And after miscarriages, abortions, 
decisions and her husband leaving her for another woman only five months after she had her twin boys, Sheila was struggling mentally, but it became clear very quickly that Sheila's mental health problems were a lot greater than what initially met the eye. In 1983, Sheila went to visit the same doctor that helped treat her mother June, and this doctor's name is Dr. Hugh Ferguson. So after an evaluation, Sheila was admitted to St. Andrew's Hospital at a private psychiatric facility in Northampton. While she was at this facility, Sheila was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. However, once Dr. Ferguson received Sheila's results, he said that the diagnosis was actually a mistake and he believed Sheila was actually suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. In her evaluation with Dr. Ferguson, he said that Sheila spoke about her thoughts of suicide and also spoke a lot about the devil. She referred to her children as the devil's children and how she believed she was capable of murdering them and on the flip side of that, she believed she was capable of getting her sons to murder others as well. Now what's crazy is even with her talk of suicide, Dr. Ferguson didn't see Sheila as suicidal and didn't think she was a suicide risk. So she actually ended up being discharged in September of 1983. And after being discharged in September, she would actually visit Dr. Ferguson as an outpatient who prescribed her with a medication called trifluoperzine, I believe is how you pronounce it. I probably am butchering it though. And this is an antipsychotic drug mostly known to help with the symptoms of schizophrenia. So then five months prior to the White House farm murders, Sheila was admitted to St. Andrews for a second time in March 1985 after she had another psychotic episode in which she believed her boyfriend and people closest to her were trying to hurt or kill her. She was then discharged a month later and received monthly injections of a drug called haloperidol. Again, I'm sorry if I'm butchering that, which is another antipsychotic medication. However, this one it has a sedative effect to it. And it was at this point that it became a collective decision that the boys, Daniel and Nicholas, would be in better care if they stayed with their father, Colin, at his house in Kilburn. So the boys basically spent all of their time with their dad and was living with Colin at that time because Sheila's mental health was not doing well. So they thought that it was the best decision for the boys. So that's what we know about Sheila. So now let's move on to Jeremy. Jeremy was born on January 13th, 1961, and his biological parents gave him up for adoption when he was six weeks old. He ended up being adopted by Juna Neville when he was six months, and similar to Sheila, Jeremy attended private schools, and he also attended a boarding school. However, at this boarding school, he really did not have a good experience. He started attending the boarding school in September of 1970 and experienced different forms of bullying and alleged sexual assault. In 1982, Jeremy returned back to Essex after college to work on June and Neville's farm. He was living rent-free in a cottage that was 3.5 miles from June and Neville's farmhouse. It was a five-minute drive and a 15-minute bike ride. So along with living rent-free in a cottage his father owned, Neville also gave Jeremy his own car to use to get around wherever he needed to go. And if that wasn't enough already, Neville also gave Jeremy 8% of the family company, which was called Osea Road Camp Sites. So Jeremy was being treated very well by his family. They set him up with a house, a car, a job, a percentage in the family company. His life was really set up for him. Jeremy was known as 
as a very handsome, charismatic young man, and at the time of the White House farm murders, he did have a girlfriend, and people seemed to really like him, and life seemed to be going very well for him. So now that you have the family background, let's talk about the days leading up to the murders. So three days prior to the murders, on August 4th, 1985, Sheila and her twin boys arrived to her parents' home to spend the week with June and Neville. According to the family housekeeper, she said that she saw Sheila the day that she arrived and nothing seemed out of the ordinary or unusual about her behavior. So now we move on to two days later after Sheila and the boys arrived, which was August 6th. Jeremy had gone over to his parents' house to visit his parents and see Sheila and his nephews, and according to Jeremy, he said that that night at dinner, June and Neville had suggested to Sheila that she should put her kids in daytime foster care with a local family. So they wouldn't be going into the foster care system full-time. It would just be more of a daytime daycare thing from my understanding. I'm not sure why this was suggested if both boys typically spent most of their time with Colin, but according to Jeremy, this was a suggestion made to Sheila that night. I'm curious if foster care in the UK versus America is different because the way that they're saying daytime foster care, I'm wondering if they mean daycare, but I'm not sure because that's not what foster care is, so I'm unsure. But during the trial for the murders, Dr. Ferguson took the stand and said that Sheila would very much be triggered by the thought of her children being taken away from her and it could very well provoke a strong reaction from her. However, according to Jeremy, she didn't seem too bothered by the suggestion and they all just kind of went about their night. Jeremy was said to have left the house at around 9.30 p.m. The farm worker who worked for the family confirmed that he heard Jeremy leave around this time. Around this same time, a woman named Barbara Wilson, who worked on the farm as a secretary, had called Neville, and according to her, she said that after making this phone call, she felt like she was interrupting an argument. She felt that there was a lot of hostility on the phone call. She said that Neville was very short with her on the phone, and he hung up in an irritated manner, which was not typical to his character. Pretty much everyone described Neville as being a very patient, calm person, so for him to lose his temper was not something people saw often. June's sister Pamela ended up calling the family at about 10 o'clock p.m. on August 6th. She said that she spoke to Sheila as well as June, and according to Pamela, Sheila was acting a little bit more quiet than usual. However, June seemed completely normal. So now we move on to the early morning hours of August 7th. According to Jeremy, he said that he got a phone call from his father Neville in the very early morning hours of August 7th. He called Jeremy from the landline of his home and told him that Sheila had, quote, gone berserk with a gun, end quote. According to Jeremy, he said that the line went dead in the middle of the phone call, and after the phone call got cut, he called the Kelmsford police station. It's interesting to note here that Jeremy did not call 999, which just for reference, if we were talking in terms of America, America has 911 and England has 999, but Jeremy didn't call 999 he called the police station instead, which he said was because he didn't think that one would take longer or shorter than the other to get to his parents' house. So the phone call that Jeremy reportedly got from his father came in at about 3.36 a.m. on August 7th, and after calling police, Jeremy, along with the authorities, drove
drove to Neville and June's home, which was now a crime scene. Now, while they're driving over there, they don't really know what they're walking into. They don't know what's going on. They don't know if everyone is hurt or if anyone's okay. They have no idea what they're walking into because there wasn't really any context given in this alleged phone call. All Jeremy said was that Neville called him frantically and in a panic saying his sister had gone berserk with a gun and then the phone call got cut off. So authorities and Jeremy are driving over to Neville and June's home and according to authorities, they said that Jeremy was driving at an extremely slow pace for someone who had gotten a concerning phone call and knowing that their family could be in danger. Now what's interesting here is that when police arrived on the scene, they actually waited two hours to go into Neville and June's home. They got there at 5 a.m. and they waited until daylight before trying to even go into the house. Because Jeremy had told authorities that his father said Sheila was the one who had gone crazy with a gun, authorities tried to use a megaphone for two hours outside of the house to try and talk to Sheila, but the only sound they could hear was the sound of the family dog barking. During the two hours of waiting outside before going in and checking on the family, authorities questioned Jeremy who, according to them, seemed very calm. He told police that him and his sister Sheila did not really get along, and he described her as a, quote, nutter who is having treatment, end quote. He mentioned that Sheila was familiar with guns, and the two of them had gone target shooting together. This was also when Jeremy disclosed to the authorities that while he was at the farmhouse earlier that evening, Jeremy himself had loaded a rifle because he thought he heard rabbits outside and thought that he was going to shoot them, and he left the rifle on the kitchen table fully loaded with a box of ammunition nearby. Jeremy told the authorities that his father most likely called Jeremy instead of 999 because Neville was the type of person who would want to keep family matters within the family only. Again, they like to portray themselves as this perfect family. They didn't want anyone to think that there was anything wrong. So after two hours of waiting outside, authorities finally entered the house at 7.54 a.m. And I'm just going to say, I find it bizarre that they waited so long to actually enter the house, considering they didn't know what was going on inside of it. They didn't know if the family was being held at gunpoint or hostage or anything like that. So why wait so long? It's pretty baffling to me. But nevertheless, they ended up entering the house at 7.54 a.m. After going through the house, authorities found the bodies of Neville, June, Sheila, and her two boys, Nicholas and Daniel. And it was clear that they had all died from gunshot wounds. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. All right, you guys, welcome back. 
Neville was found downstairs in the kitchen. He was dressed in pajamas, lying over an overturned chair, and he had been shot eight times, and six of those times were to his head and to his face. Based on where the empty cartridges and bullets were found, authorities concluded that Neville had actually been shot four times upstairs and then managed to get downstairs where the struggle took place. Neville had two wounds to his right side and two to the top of his head. He had bruising to his lip, his jaw was fractured, and his teeth, neck, and larynx were all injured as well. Based on the markings of his body, authorities believed it was possible that Neville was struck with the gun that had shot him. Neville was the only one found downstairs as the rest of the family was found upstairs. June's body had been covered in blood lying on the floor by the doorway of the master bedroom. She had been shot seven times, one to her forehead, one between her eyes, as well as shots to her lower neck, right forearm, and injuries on the right side of her chest and knee. Sheila was found on the floor of the master bedroom not far from her mother. She was in pajamas as well and had two bullet wounds under her chin and one of them on her throat. There were no marks on Sheila's body that indicated a struggle and there was no trace of lead on her at all as well. The blood that was found on Sheila's pajamas was concluded to be her own and as far as the boys Nicholas and Daniel go, both boys were found in their beds in the room that they stayed at their grandparents' house, which was formerly Sheila's bedroom when she was a child growing up there, and they had been shot while sleeping. Daniel had been shot five times in the back of the head and Nicholas had been shot three times. Now let's talk about the gun. The gun that was used was the rifle that Jeremy had mentioned to authorities earlier that he had left on the kitchen table. This same rifle was actually found right next to Sheila. The rifle was lying on Sheila's body pointing up to her neck where her gunshots were. June's Bible was also on the floor to the right of Sheila, which was unusual because it was normally kept in the bedside cupboard. Authorities tried to trace DNA on the Bible and they found June's fingerprints as well as multiple sets of DNA, but they were unable to identify who it belonged to. So all in all, there had been about 25 shots fired at mostly close range. The landline telephone was lying on the kitchen floor and the receiver was off of the hook. Multiple decor items had been broken, chairs and stools were flipped over, there was a broken ceiling light, and what appeared to be blood on the floor. When Jeremy was made aware of his family's condition, he was reported to be extremely, extremely emotional and upset. He was crying and he actually began throwing up at his family's home. He was not doing well and he was just extremely horrified by what had happened. So now let's move on to the investigation and from the get-go, authorities were basically just convinced that the White House farm murders was a murder-suicide. They were certain that Sheila killed her family and because of this certainty, it made for a pretty messy and unorganized investigation. The crime scene was not secured and searched thoroughly, and along with that, the evidence was not recorded or preserved. Authorities went as far as literally burning the bedding and carpets throughout the home because they were trying to spare Jeremy's feelings. The rifle was moved by an officer who wasn't wearing gloves, so they got their fingerprints all over it, and the rifle was not examined for fingerprints until weeks after the killings. Then, only three 
Days after the murders, Jeremy was given back the keys to his house. Jeremy's clothes were not examined until a month after the killings, and 10 years after the murders, all blood samples were destroyed. One thing I do want to mention that authorities found in the twins' bedroom, which, remember, used to be Sheila's former bedroom when she was growing up as a child, they found a carving in the cupboard that said, quote, I hate this place, end quote. I'm unsure if this carving was done the night of the murders or if it was something Sheila had done as a child. That was never made certain, but I just wanted you guys to be aware of that fact. Now, just days after the murders, June, Neville, and Sheila's bodies were all cremated. The boys did end up getting buried, and at the funeral, multiple family members deemed Jeremy's behavior as extremely suspicious and questionable. He was apparently extremely emotional during the funeral service for his parents and his sister. He was seen sobbing and actually almost fell over at one point because he was so distraught and his girlfriend had to help hold him up. But according to the friends and family that were also at the funeral, Jeremy's distraught behavior was just an act for the cameras. Because you have to remember, when something like this happens, when there is five people murdered, this is not something that goes unrecognized by the media. The media blew this case up and so there were tons of cameras at this funeral getting in on Jeremy and apparently, according to his friends and family, Jeremy really played up the emotions when the cameras were on him, but when the cameras were turned off, it was a whole different story. He wasn't emotional at all once the cameras weren't on him and people around him said it was definitely obvious that he was just playing into what he thought he was supposed to act like. Along with the funeral, the family also had a wake, and if you are unfamiliar with what a wake is, a wake is basically a celebration of someone's life that has passed away. There's food, there's drinks, there's people there that talk about the memories that they share with the person who has passed. And again, according to family and friends, Jeremy's behavior at this wake was very unusual. According to the people around him, he was making jokes about how he couldn't wait to go home that day with his girlfriend and for them to have fun together, and he was making jokes about how he is now the boss. He was seen laughing and joking, and I think it's important to just to play devil's advocate for a second and talk about what a wake can sometimes be. I've been to a couple, and I guess it just depends on the person and the family and the atmosphere, because some people use a wake as a positive experience or try to make it as positive as they can to celebrate their loved one and celebrate their life, and others may not do that. So I don't know if him being more upbeat at the wake is really telling of anything. And again, it's just like we always say, you never know how someone is going to grieve or handle the mourning process. I will say the quote about being the boss now is a little off-putting, but again, you never really know how someone's going to handle when literally their entire family is murdered because it rarely, rarely ever happens. So not too long after the funeral, Jeremy started traveling a lot. He traveled to Amsterdam with his friends, and he also traveled to Saint-Tropez. Now, around this time is when he also started selling some of his family's belongings. He sold both June and Neville's car, and he also tried selling 20 nude photographs of his sister, Sheila, which is incredibly bizarre and disturbing and weird. He tried to sell them to a tabloid newspaper called The Sun. Now, when The Sun got this inquiry from Jeremy, they actually denied the pictures and didn't run with them because, again, this is a very weird thing to do. So, I want to talk about the gun for a minute, the rifle that was used. When authorities finally ran the gun for prints, they found a print from Sheila's right ring finger that was on the right side of the gun pointing downwards. They also found a print from Jeremy 
Jeremy's right forefinger that was on the rear end of the barrel above the stock. Now, Jeremy said that the reason his fingerprints were on the gun at all was because he had loaded it earlier that day for the purpose of shooting rabbits. So I don't know a lot about guns, so I had to do some researching for this one, so forgive me if I'm a little bit off here, but it was reported that the silencer of the rifle was not on the gun when authorities discovered the bodies. The silencer was actually found three days after the murders in the ground floor office, and authorities didn't even find it. It was one of Jeremy and Sheila's cousins that found the silencer. Now, I didn't know what a silencer was, so I had to look into it, and when I did, I learned that a silencer, which is also known as a sound suppressor, is almost like a muzzling device that reduces the sound of gunfire and eliminates muzzle flash when the gun is discharged. Now, authorities were never able to determine if the silencer was on the gun during the time of the murders, and this became a pivotal issue in this case, because if the silencer was on the gun, that meant that Sheila couldn't have shot herself because her arms were not long enough to turn the gun on herself with the silencer attached. It was argued that if she murdered everyone else with the silencer attached and then realized she needed to remove it before shooting herself, authorities believe that the silencer would have been found right next to her body, because why would she go all the way to the cupboard in the office and put the silencer back before walking upstairs to shoot herself? Now, when the silencer was found, there was blood on it, and the surface of the silencer had been damaged as well. The blood was determined to be backscatter caused by close contact shooting, and the blood was determined to be the same type of blood as Sheila's. But authorities didn't want to rule anything out because they learned that it also could have been a mixture of Neville and June's blood as well, so they didn't really know whose blood was on this silencer. I also want to mention something because this was, I was very confused when I read this. So Sheila was shot three times, and I never understood why authorities were even questioning if she was the one who shot herself or not because I didn't understand how she could shoot herself three times. But according to the medical examiners who examined Sheila, there is a way where she could have shot herself twice and it not have been fatal and then shot herself one more time and that being the fatal shot that ended her life. My question is, would she be strong enough at that point to shoot herself three times? If she had already shot herself twice, would she be able to do it again? So I was able to learn in this case that you can shoot yourself multiple times before you end up passing away and that was something I had not known before. So I just wanted to put that out there just in case you were a little confused about it. I'm not completely sure on the science of how it's possible, but according to the medical examiners, it is possible. So I want to talk about someone extremely close to Jeremy, which is his girlfriend named Julie Mugford. Julie and Jeremy began dating in 1983 when she was 19 years old, and the two of them had worked at the same restaurant and hit it off, and they just got together. When authorities spoke to Julie, she actually disclosed to police that Jeremy had a history of stealing money. He even went as far as one time to staging the office of his family company, the same company his father gave him 8% of, to look like it was a break-in and that strangers came in and stole money. And it wasn't even a big amount of money that he took. He just wanted to make it look like some strangers stole money from his family's company. So Julie kind of came clean to authorities about Jeremy's not-so-honest past. But regardless of this, Julie was very supportive of Jeremy right after the murders. She said that on the early morning hours of August 7th, Jeremy called her and told her there's something 
something wrong at home, but he didn't go into detail and Julie said it was the middle of the night so she really didn't ask what was wrong and she just kind of ended the phone call and went back to bed. However, a month following the murders, Julie told authorities that Jeremy seemed to be wanting to end the relationship. Their relationship was becoming really toxic and a huge part of this was due to the White House farm murders. She said that the two of them had argued about his possible involvement in Julie's questions regarding the murders and Julie just had a lot of questions and their relationship got so toxic that Julie actually tried to smother Jeremy with a pillow one night but was unsuccessful. Then in September, it came out that Jeremy had been having an affair and was cheating on Julie, which was really the straw that broke the camel's back with Julie and she responded by breaking all this furniture in his home and hitting Jeremy and then Jeremy responded by taking Julie's arm and twisting it up behind her back. So this relationship was not healthy for a lot of reasons. And after this incident where Julie had discovered that Jeremy had been cheating on her, she decided to go to the police department and change her statement. So in her first statement, she was completely supportive of Jeremy. She, you know, said that he didn't really have anything to do with it. She would never believe that he would ever do something like this, even though she then went on and had questions to him about his involvement and they got into a lot of arguments about it. To the authorities, Julie kind of put on this face of, he would never do something like this. However, in her second statement, Julie said that between the months of July and October of 1984, which was one year prior to the murders, Jeremy had mentioned multiple times of wishing that he could get rid of his whole family. He said that his parents were trying to run his life and that Sheila had nothing to live for and the twins were going to grow up and be disturbed. According to Julie, she said the motive for the killings was to inherit the entire farm estate for Jeremy's himself. In his parents' will, it was said that both him and Sheila would split the estate in half. However, Jeremy wanted all the money for himself. Julie said that Jeremy was annoyed at the fact that his parents were supporting Sheila financially. However, this was extremely hypocritical because they were doing the exact same thing for Jeremy as well. Julie said that Jeremy had talked to her about sedating his parents with sleeping pills. He talked about setting the house on fire and about shooting them. Julie alleged that Jeremy said that Sheila would be the perfect scapegoat in this situation because it would be believable for someone as crazy as her to act out something like this. Julie also said that Jeremy confided in her in telling her that he had tried to kill rats with his bare hands to see whether or not he would be able to go through with killing his family. He then told Julie that after going through with this exercise, he learned, it's not an exercise, this is absolute insanity, but Julie said that after he went through this, she used the words exercise, he learned that he would not be able to go through with killing his family, but Julie said that didn't stop him from constantly talking about it. On the night of August 6th at about 9.50 p.m., Julie said that Jeremy had called her to say that he was pissed off and he had been thinking about murdering his family all day and that it was tonight or never. She said that she then got a call at 3 a.m. on August 7th saying, quote, everything is going well. Something is wrong at the farm. I haven't had any sleep all night. Bye, honey. I love you lots, end quote. When Julia got the phone call later that morning about what had happened, she had been picked up by the authorities to go down to the scene to meet Jeremy, which is when Julie said Jeremy pulled her to the side once she got there and told her, quote, I should have been an actor, end quote. Now, later that night, Julie said she asked Jeremy if he was responsible for this. I will say it's very strange that with all things considered and everything Julie is saying now that she didn't speak out sooner. This is a like five people being murdered, so there's that, but she said that when she asked Jeremy if he was responsible, he said no, but that he knew who did it. According to 
Julie, she said that Jeremy said the family plumber was the one responsible for the murders and that Jeremy had instructed him on how to do it. Julie said Jeremy told the plumber how to enter the White House farm without being detected and he was able to do it successfully. Police really believed Julie's statement and because of this, authorities actually went ahead and arrested Jeremy on September 8th, 1985, just one day after this statement was given. Jeremy, along with the plumber, were both arrested. However, the plumber had an alibi and he was released. Jeremy told authorities that Julie was lying and making this all up due to the fact that he cheated on her and didn't want to be with her anymore. When authorities asked why he broke into his family's work and stole money and staged a break-in, he said that he just did it to prove that their family security system was not good and needed upgrading. Jeremy was charged with breaking and entering into his family's workspace on September 9th. However, he was released on bail on September 13th. He returned to England about two weeks later on September 29th after traveling, and that is when he was arrested and charged with the murders of Sheila, June, Neville, Nicholas, and Daniel. So this trial began on October 3rd, 1986. The jury was made up of seven men and five women. The prosecution was led by Anthony Allridge, and the defense was led by Jeffrey Rivlin and supported by Ed Lawson. The prosecution's argument was that Jeremy was led by hatred and greed, and he wanted to gain everything he could financially off of his parents and wanted to live his own life and wanted them out of the picture and didn't want to have to share his parents' estate with Sheila. Prosecution said that Jeremy left the White House farm at about 10 o'clock p.m. on August 6th after dinner with his family and drove home to his cottage. They said that later in the early morning hours of the 7th, Jeremy returned to the farm on his mother's bicycle that he borrowed a few days earlier. That way, no one would see his car driving down the road, and he entered the house through the downstairs bathroom window. Prosecution said he then took the rifle with the silencer attached and went upstairs to the second floor. They said that Jeremy shot June in her bed. However, the shot didn't kill her and she was able to get out of bed and walk a few steps before collapsing on the floor and dying. Prosecution argued that Jeremy then shot Neville and Sheila and shot the children in their beds as they were sleeping. They said that Jeremy set the scene to make it look like Sheila was the killer. He knew that authorities would look at the measurement of the gun through the silencer and that's why he removed it and put it back in the gun cupboard. They said that he removed the kitchen phone from the hook, left the house through the window, and then cycled back to his cottage. Shortly after 3 a.m., they said that he called his girlfriend and then the police to create a delay before the bodies were discovered. Because of the fact that Neville's body showed that there was a struggle and that Neville did try to fight for his life, prosecution said that there was no way that Sheila could have taken on Neville like that. Neville was six foot four and was in good health before his death, so prosecution said Sheila could not have taken on Neville like that. Sheila's doctor also took the stand and said Sheila would never have harmed her children or her father and that she also had no interest or knowledge of guns. She had a really bad relationship with her mother, June, but she would never gone as far as to murdering her own children and her father. Now, the defense, on the other hand, basically argued against this. They said that Sheila was the murderer and that she did know how to handle guns. They really played into her mental illness and the fact that her family suggested she place her kids in foster care. Defense had an ex-boyfriend of Sheila's take the stand and talk about a mental breakdown she had where she talked about God and the devil 
and how he said that she had a very deep and intense dislike for June. The defense also argued that other people who have carried out killings such as these have been known to engage in ritualistic behavior before killing themselves, and it was a possibility that after the murders, Sheila could have put the silencer in the cupboard, changed her clothes, and taken a shower, which would explain why there is little gunpowder on her hands. So at the end of the trial, the judge looked at the jury and told them they had three things that they needed to deliberate. The judge said, one, they needed to figure out if they believed Julie or Jeremy. Two, were they sure that Sheila was not the killer who then committed suicide? And three, did Neville call Jeremy in the middle of the night? Because if there was no call made, it completely undermined the entirety of Jeremy's story. So after nine and a half hours of deliberation, the jury found Jeremy Bamber guilty on August 28, 1986, and he was sentenced to five life terms. Jeremy did try to appeal his case multiple times, saying that the judge had misdirected the jury. However, the application was refused. So I want to talk about a campaign that gathered over the years from November 2015 in hopes to help with Jeremy's release because there are a lot of people out there who do believe that Jeremy's innocent. There's people out there who think Julie just came up with this awful story after finding out that her boyfriend was cheating on her in hopes to lock him up for this. However, you then have people on the other side of this who say that Jeremy is absolutely the one who murdered his entire family. Jeremy, from the get-go, has maintained his innocence on this. Obviously, he said that he never did this. This was not something that he would do. And I want to talk about one thing that was mentioned in this campaign that I thought was very interesting. Now, there was a report from an officer on the scene of the crime at the White House farm who said that when they went to the house, they saw what they thought to be the body of a woman near the kitchen door. However, they later determined what she actually saw was a man instead of a woman and that she saw the body of Neville. Now, Jeremy's lawyers argued that based off of the pictures of Sheila taken by police after she had died, pictures showed that Sheila's blood was still wet. Now, defense said that if she had been killed before 3.30 a.m. like the others in her family, the blood would not appear to be wet anymore by the time authorities were in there. Defense argued that Sheila was actually still alive when Jeremy was standing outside with the authorities and that she shot herself in the kitchen as police entered and then ran up the staircase to the bedroom where she shot herself fatally a final time. My wonder here is, would police have heard the sound of the gun go off if she had shot herself while they were walking inside of the house because the silencer wasn't on the gun, so that kind of gives it more of a volume when it gets shot, so wouldn't the authorities have heard? So I don't know, just something to keep in mind. So basically, we have two theories here. We have the first theory that Jeremy murdered his family, walked into the home, shot all of his family members, and made it look like Sheila was the one responsible and leaned in on her mental illness to make it look like she did it. Or we have the theory that Sheila was responsible. What bothers me here is the fact that authorities jump to conclusions so quickly on this case, and in doing that, they really stalled the opportunity to look at any other possibilities when it came to this case. They didn't even look at Jeremy's clothes until a month after the murder. They waited two hours to even walk inside of the house to look at the crime scene, and they were just very lazy overall in this investigation because they assumed something without really looking at all of the facts. Do I think it's possible that Jeremy murdered his entire family? Yes, and if he is the person who murdered his entire family, then should he ever be allowed to be released from prison? Without question, absolutely not. Do I think it's possible that Sheila was the one who murdered her family? 
A little bit. I'm not completely ruling it out. I don't know. I don't think that it's completely out of the question. I do think it's telling how her doctor said that he doesn't think she's capable of doing something like this and that she would never attack her children. But there are also previous reports that we talked about in the beginning when she visited the psychiatric hospital where she said that she has had thoughts of murdering her children and her children are referred to as the devil's children by her. I do question that if this was a murder-suicide by Sheila, why why she would take her boys' lives with her. It makes me believe that the boys were killed to either cover up who was actually responsible for this, almost as if whoever killed the family killed the boys because they didn't want to have any witnesses left behind. Personally, I do believe more so that Jeremy is responsible for this than Sheila. However, I wouldn't be surprised necessarily either way on this case. This case blows my mind and it has really been a battle in my brain for the past couple days. So I'm curious to hear what you guys have to say and where your verdict lies. So definitely let me know. Email me at killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's just killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. And with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you are new here again, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode here. And with that being said, you guys, I'll see you back here next week. And until then, stay safe. <laughs>